Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 18 through 23. Romans 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as your apostle Paul starts to drill further down into our hearts, doing that exposing heart surgery on us, exposing just how utterly sinful our hearts are, may your spirit give us the joy of your salvation that you have saved us through giving us the gift of faith to trust in Jesus and repent of our sins so that we might be saved from your just wrath, your just anger against us for our sins. And you saved us by placing all your anger on him as you punished him in our place by placing all our sins on him. And so we say with great joy and confidence, it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen. Now, I know a lot of people in here, if you haven't had kids, you've experienced a two-year-old or a three-year-old. And what is their favorite question that they can never understand the answer for? No matter how many times you can give that answer. Why? Why? He asked that question. Well, why? He answered that one. Well, why? And there is no end in sight for this, right? So you just have to go, it's just that way, kid. Now, we're done. Okay, And we have here in verse 18, there's a word for, because Paul is going to tell us, he's been talking about this great and glorious gospel, this good news, this announcement of God's favor toward his people. And then he's, you know, the inevitable question, well, why do we need the gospel? Right? Well, Paul is telling us for, it's like saying because, All right. So that's what the word for is there for. Now, sometimes it's there for, but this time, anyway, bad joke, bad dad joke there. (laughs) Um, Back a few years ago when I was doing youth ministry, there was a series of books that later became movies called The Hunger Games. And it was about a, it was a, what you call a dystopia Meaning that as we work so hard to get to that utopia, 
what dystopias inevitably show us is we'll never get there because this is the way our hearts are like. And we'll always abuse power if it's not held in check. So Hunger Games was a dystopia like 1984 or Brave New World, if you've ever read those, in which a totalitarian, totalitarian state has a bunch of people that are being ruled by it uh, while they live pristinely and indulgently and the people have to fight for scraps. Well, in this uh, series of novels, the central character is this young lady named Katniss Everdeen. And she talks about particularly one guy that she feels like she goes in, what they do is they take all the kids, um, I think it's a yearly thing, and they take a representative from each district. They're not states anymore. It's supposed to be our country, but what it becomes. And they take a kid from each district and they put them into an enclosed area and they have to kill each other. And whoever, it's sort of king of the hill, but literally until the last one standing wins. And somehow Katniss figures out a way to save this kid named PETA, P-E-E-T-A. I'm not saying Peter like my Bostonian relatives used to say, PETA, right? So, um, but his name is PETA. Uh, and she, she, she saves him. He, he's kind of he's almost useless as a guy, okay? I'm just saying. He's a good guy. He really is. Tenderhearted, kind. But all he knows how to do is bake. <laughs> and so one day when she was a little girl, since he's in the bakery and his dad owns a bakery, he sees she's really struggling with hunger and he throws a piece of bread out to her. And so she says, I feel like I own something and I hate owing people. But she has to save Peter because Peter saved her. You see, what Paul is saying here is that there really are no atheists. And trust me, we always think these atheists, they're so smart. And, you know, we, we just should cower. We're Christians. We just believe in faith. We don't want to think about it. Trust me, if you ever scratch just a little bit beyond the surface on atheists, pretty much everyone in here can take down an atheist. I'm sorry. It's the way it is. Now, they may not buy it, but I'm telling you, it's easy. I may not know everything about the field of study that they're in, but I can tell you their atheism is very flimsy. Okay? I won't demonstrate now, but I could how you can do that. There really are no atheists is what Paul is saying. All of us feel like we owe. We owe God. And if you're not a, a, a Christian and you're an atheist, you might say, I owe the universe or something. I hear this coming up in TV shows now and movies. I owe the universe for my life. Why do we feel the need to be thankful but we can never, and we know we can never repay. Why? Because there's something wrong with us. We know that we lack. We have been weighed in the balances by some kind of standard out there, and we intuitively know that we come up wanting, that we are lacking, that we are lackluster, or as the kids say today, meh. And that's why we're more comfortable with lesser gods than the gods, God of this universe. You see, the main idea here is that God, 
He does have covenant blessing, but along with covenant blessing, there is a covenant curse. And God's covenant curse clarifies to us why we need the gospel. See, there was a first covenant it's called the covenant of works. What theologians call the covenant of works with Adam. The day you don't eat from this tree, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's the work. You've got to perform it, Adam. Right? Well, Adam broke it, so he brought the curse down on him and all his posterity after him. So this is why we need the gospel. Because the gospel is the fullest expression of God's covenant of grace. It's covenant of blessing. Why do we need the gospel? Well, Paul says here, it's because God's wrath is revealed. His just anger, his wrath is revealed in his revelatory creation. It's revealed in our unrighteous suppression of of the truth and of our ungodly exchange of the truth of God for lies. Well, first of all, and by the way, this is a heading. God, Paul's gonna drill down into some very specific things and we'll get into that next week. This is sort of like the introduction to his book on why we need the gospel, okay? First of all, we need the gospel because God's wrath is revealed in his revelatory creation. And you see it right there in, in what Paul says, we have no excuses at all because God has made it plain to us. We see that at the beginning of uh, verse 18, for the wrath of God is what? Revealed. In other words, God could have kept it hidden. He could have scrambled our minds, but he didn't, right? We scrambled our minds because we look at that and we go, oh, no, I want to make my own way. God's wrath is revealed. He's made it plain to us. And we know with an intuitive sense that God is the authority of the world. As the old hymn says, God speaks to us everywhere in nature, in all the artwork and the creations of men. He speaks to us everywhere. We know that that the source of all this is from beyond. It, it can't come. We can't generate this kind of world. It's way too complex. Irreducibly complex. Things work together and they have to work together in systems. They don't just, like Charles Darwin said, well, gradually they grow a little thing here and then that little thing comes out and then that little thing comes out and lo and behold, the fish gets up and walks on dry land. You know what? There are things inside of us and, and, and Darwin didn't even know what a cell was, really. There are things inside of us that it can't go gradually. They come whole together, a system like little cogs and wheels and little levers and things. You have to have the whole thing that can't come about gradually. So we know that there is an irreducible complexity and it can't have come from us. Like Jim Morrison of the Doors used to sing, into this world we're thrown. In his dark lyrics from the Doors, into this world we're thrown. That's the way a non-believer thinks sometimes. So we know we have an intuitive sense of God's authority and his power, 
but it's kind of vague at the same time for us. Now, again, we have this sense of we owe, we know we lack, and because we know we lack, we know we owe. We must be much more than we really are. I mean, why would the self-improvement industry, when you go into Barnes & Noble, look at the stacks of books in self-improvement? Why? Because we know we ain't all that. And then you go after self-help and it's the next self-help thing. I'm not saying there isn't wisdom in that. But I'll tell you, you can run through a thousand of those books and you'll probably find out at the end of the day you ain't any further along than where you started. You might have some little tweaks here and there that can be helpful. But you know, you're still kind of, eh, whatever, at the end of the day. I'm not talking about how you can be for other people, by the way. You know that at the end of the day, you don't have it all and, and your standard is eternity, and you know you can't stack up. Everyone in here knows that. The reason why I say it's vague, though, is because you've got to ask, what is it that we owe? And how much do we owe, and why? And Paul goes on to say that as God has made it plain, it's not just that he's made it plain, we actually perceive it. Verses 19 through 20. The problem is not with God's revelation in his creation at all. The problem, in a sense, is not with us even. Look at what it says there in verse, verse 20. I mean, first verse 19. For what can be known, so something can be known about God, he says, is plain to them. There ain't nothing wrong with it. So an atheist is really working hard to go against the grain here. Because God, look, it isn't that it's just plain, oh, look at that tree, we know God made it. No, God, it says, God gets actively involved. He's shown it to them. And in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been what? Clearly perceived. That's on our end. We see it. That's why we have all this internal angst about ourselves. It's why the, not just self-help, but the self-psychology that's around. Everybody feels guilty, right? We're like, um, I forgot the lady's name in Shakespeare's Hamlet, washing her hands, right, of the blood. No, Macbeth. Is it Macbeth? Lady Macbeth, yeah. Washing her hands. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, confirmation there. Have my... Uh, English lit teacher there always helped me out. So, you know, trying to wash your hands of the blood, just can't get it off. That's us. It's a picture of us. So, he says, they're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. From the time we've been, as Jim Morrison said, into this world thrown, though I don't believe we were thrown, we were placed here. Um, It's clearly perceived in the things that have been made. We see it. There's no problem. But there is a problem. And the problem is us. Because look at what he says after that. So they are without excuse. And boy, can we come up with a list of excuses. Can we not? When we get caught. And so, Paul is saying here, we have no excuses. Well, what if they never heard about Jesus? No excuses. Your nature is shown 
because my nature is shown and my nature reveals your nature and you already know that you lack. You need to know, and yet with that lack, what do you do? We'll get to that in a minute. When you find out you lack. But right now, just keep it like this. You know you make excuses for yourself. You're hard on other people, but you make all kinds of excuses for yourself. You're hard on people outside your family, but for your family, oh, but you don't understand. You make excuses. Jesus says, look, this is the thing why we make excuses. Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Did he qualify that? Did he say, oh, I'll let you have a few? No, you will give account for every careless word you speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. And guess what? We all condemned under that standard. Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus saying, I'm not lightening this load on you at all. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not relaxing anything. The gospel isn't about Jesus going, hey, I'll give you some wiggle room. You go, well, that's not good news. Well, hang on, okay? God's covenant curse clarifies why we need the gospel. And why is that? Because God's wrath, you see, that's the, that's the focal point. That's the real enemy. It's God's wrath. God's wrath, his just anger against us for our sins is revealed not only in his revelatory creation, but that revelatory creation calls up something within us. It's our unrighteous suppression. We hate God by nature. We were born into this world hating God. And if you don't think you do, you have too high a view of yourself. And we all do anyway. We all think we're better than we are, right? That's why we have to come to church too, okay? Because we are gloriously made, there's no doubt. There's a lot of glory that still shines forth. But in the end, our evaluation of ourselves, we go easy and we make excuses and we, we think we're better. We're good people. And I just got to tell everybody how to be good. No, we're bad people. We got to hear from God what good really is. And God doesn't just sit by and just let it, oh, you know, like he's the big grandpa that, Finally, you know, oh, just come in. I just love you, kid. Come on, give granddaddy a hug. Thinking that that will just calm him down. No, God knows. God knows. See, what we do is we suppress. Suppress is not like, I'll just turn it off. Suppress is a very active, forceful thing. It's like holding a beach ball underwater. Have you ever tried to do that? Right? There's God's truth. It's that big beach ball. And try to push that underwater. And what happens? Boop! Right? It pops back up. 
You go over there, and that's what we do. We're endlessly trying to suppress the truth about God and our accountability to him. We keep trying to push it under, and it keeps going, whoop. And that's why people feel so guilty and so lackluster and so lacking. And it's a grace that God even evokes this out of us, provokes it out of us. Because he's giving you time to repent and to turn and to come back to him. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It wouldn't be revealed here because we have too high of a view of ourselves. It's revealed from heaven against all, this verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, all of it. God is omniscient. You understand that when we talk about God's anger, I know some people have this, I mean, and, and, and maybe some of you all had abusive pasts. I'm not talking about that kind of anger. See, God doesn't fly off the handle. Wrath is not God going, ah! It's God's measured, on trial, just execution of his holy, just anger against you. He's omniscient. He knows everything. You can try your excuses. You think you're going to get that past him? No. And he knows how to punish in accord with the value of who we've offended and how valuable is God? Eternal. But God keeps pursuing us. That beach ball keeps popping up. You know why? For some, to me, because I'm not God, for some crazy reason, he wants our consent to him. I mean, if we had the power and we had to deal with people like us, you know what we'd do? We'd be just like Chairman Mao. Power comes from the barrel of a gun, baby. That's what we would do. But God's not like that. Some reason he, he kind of likes us, even loves us. Look at our condition. This is the reason why we won't consent. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're what? By nature, children of wrath. That is the natural course of things. Like the rest of mankind, all of us. And so what do we do with it? We suppress and we start to build ourselves up, don't we? Look at verses 21 and 22. For although they knew God, and unbelievers know God, by the way. You know people that you don't like, right? So it's not just about a relationship. We all, every human being has a relationship with God. The question is, are you on good terms or are you on bad terms? Right? So although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him. But what happened? They became two things, futile and foolish. Feudal means useless, of no value. 
Foolish. Foolish is, as the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We try to act like there's no God. We live like there's no God. And what do we end up doing? Verse 22, claiming to be wise. The world today, all the educated people, they are all so wise, aren't they? They can figure everything out. They can come up with everything in the map. They can come up with medicine just like that. Right? Safe and effective. All the wise people claiming to be wise, what? They became fools. Why? Because they cut themselves off from God. That's why we ought to have a modicum of distrust when it's all central, one message coming from one source all the time. At least some distrust. And say, hey, wait, I want to investigate this a little bit. Because that's how we are. You understand, that's, we're no different from these people. You take all the checks and balances off of us, give us a comfy bureaucrat job that we can know how to hold on to and keep siphoning off the government the money. If we were in that position, we'd probably do the same thing left to ourselves. Don't think more highly of yourself than you want. You see, they knew God, but they did not give thanks. They did not honor him. Claiming my wisdom. It's my wisdom, not his. Right? Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty. That's what we are. We're crafty. We're not really wise. We're crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? You see, even Satan there is kind of throwing a bone to God. Because he knows the woman thinks what the God is the source of wisdom, right? So he, he's kind of cloaking it. He's saying, oh, wait, 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 wait. And like an evil lawyer, did you look down in the provisos and the little small print there? Did he actually say now? Well, the, the, you know, is he holding back from you that you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? When God said you could eat from all except one, right? So he's narrowing Eve down to this one tree and getting her fixated on the one tree. Yeah, why? Why is he holding back this one tree? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But, the, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, <laughs> see, I, I, we go back a long way. God and I, we do. Um, <laughs> it's so funny how he does that. He's a little bit manipulative at times. So <laughs> you, you will not surely die. See, see God's kind of, He's made you pretty glorious, see, and, and, and you're, you're kind of like him. I mean, I know some inside facts that he made you in his image, but so he's kind of scared of you. Look, I'm talking from personal experience here. He's kind of scared of you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil, meaning determining for yourself good and evil. And What's going on here is, um, my thought just left me, forgive me. I have to come back to that some other day. Oh, well, that's how it goes sometimes when you're preaching. The whole thing is, though, 
that Satan is trying to put God and his most beloved creation at odds. And so when, oh, this is what I wanted to say. It wasn't that the fruit was magical and it brought about like the poison apple, right? It's not that. What was it about? It was about the fact that God said, don't eat from this tree. It was the violation of God's command. That was the problem. It was the breaking of the covenant with God. So when Adam, not Eve, and I won't go through all that again, it wasn't Eve that led us into this. It was Adam when she took and gave to her husband. He also ate. He was there letting it all happen, right? We ended up hating God by nature because he's competition for us. His will against ours. So God's covenant curse clarifies why we need the gospel. And that's why his curse is actually a grace for believers. Why do we need the gospel? Because God's wrath is revealed in his revelatory creation, in our unrighteous suppression, and lastly, in our ungodly exchange. We put our hatred of God into action. It ain't just an attitude or a bad attitude. It ain't just mouth, it's everything. We go hard in this hatred. First of all, we see in verse 23, the first part, we exchanged what? We exchanged the glory of the immortal God. We exchanged glory. Somehow, we were dissatisfied with the glory of God being shared with us in, in piecemeal ways because we're finite and he's infinite. And we said to God, ah, your glory, ah, no, nah, I don't think so. I'm gonna chart my own path. I gotta, I gotta find myself. Right? And what did we exchange it for? Well, let me ask you this. In this exchange, what's the return on investment business-wise? Is this a good, good exchange here? We exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images. Now, what do you know about images? Are they as substantial as the glory of God? Are they as substantial as the real thing? Is a photo of my family the same thing as having my family? Is it nice to have? Yes. It's not the same thing. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling men who die, immortal, I mean, mortal man and birds and animals, reptiles. Now, Paul's not just talking about, yeah, we worship birds. He's just talking about we have a totally earthly focus, just like John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine no heaven above us and no hell below us. And what a glorious thing that would be. We wouldn't fight anymore, would we? <laughs> Oh, poor John, poor John. See, what we end up with is something called a simulacra. You know what a simulacra is? I got this from somebody else. I'm, I can't footnote it too well, but if you want to know, I'll tell you later. A simulacra is, let's just say I'm a, I'm a strawberry farmer, right? Back in 1881, I got strawberries in my farm and Take my grandson out and I say, hey, I want to show you something. See that down there? Pull that out of the ground. Let's wipe it off. 
Put it in your mouth. See what you think. Whoa! This is so good! What are we gonna... We gotta make more of these! Right? And then later, it spreads like wildfire all over the country. Strawberry, you gotta have strawberries, you gotta have strawberries. And then later said, hey, wait a minute, I got an idea. What if we could take that flavor, maybe extract it somehow, and put it into this knee-high strawberry soda? And everybody goes, takes a sip of that soda. Man, that is so good. And knee-high strawberry soda, everybody's drinking knee-high strawberry soda. Hey, I got an idea too. What if we could add something that goes beyond the soda? What if we had like maybe some strawberry mint gum? Everybody going crazy over strawberry mint gum, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And then later, somewhere, maybe 250 years later, some other grandpa, still on the farm, same family, brings his grandson out. Hey, pull that out of the ground. Put it in your mouth. The kid puts it in his mouth and he goes, Man, that is the worst. What are you talking about? Are you saying that this is the same thing as in my strawberry mint gum? I'm sorry, that stuff, the gum is so much better. You see how it works? That's how we put our hatred of God into action. We push him out. He keeps popping up. And as more he pops up, the more we hate him unless our nature has changed. And that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Because as you talk about the, the simulacra of strawberries spreading all around in great... Uh, sorry, I used the brand name. Sorry, I didn't mean to... It's nothing wrong with it, gum or soda or anything. Just understand, you know, the illustration, right? It spreads like wildfire. And when we get together, it gets worse. And you know what this shows? How patient he is. Genesis eleven six through seven at the Tower of Babel, and the Lord God said, and the Lord said, "Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech." That's a grace that God did for for people to give us more time to consider the truth so that he may work in us by his truth of his word and show us the way to Jesus. So why, in conclusion, why do we feel like we owe? And know that we can't repay because we have no excuses for how our nature is. We hate God by nature and we're not content to let it sit in our internal worlds and words. No, we have to put that hating nature into action for all to see. Look at me. Look at my glory. And then God, the beach ball pops up and we're shook. And we go, because we know that God sees and he knows and he will not let it go. And ultimately, it's not because he's holding a grudge. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Look at Isaiah 63. I mean, Isaiah 6, 3 through 5, the encounter with the holiness of God. And to 
And one talking about the angels called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundation of the thresholds of the temple, meaning where Isaiah was, shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, what? Woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why does he say unclean lips? He's just not, he's not talking about cussing, although it can be included in that. He's saying that everything that comes out of my mouth, which is in my heart, which Jesus already talked about too. Well, not by this point, but Jesus talks about what's in my heart comes out my mouth and reveals the nature that I have. That's what he's talking about there. God is putting his just righteousness, his just disgust at our sin into action. And it's called his wrath. So here's the great creation exchange. We'd rather be comfortable with ourselves and our friends and family in this fleeting, futile, and foolish world than seek to be comfortable with God in future judgment. So how do we get comfortable with God at judgment? Because you can right now. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Some of the sweetest words in the Bible. But God... Right after all that stuff about being dead in trespasses and sins. But God, you know what God is? He's not what Satan painted him to be. He's expansive and loving and kind and wants us to flourish. But God being rich in mercy. When we are lackluster and lacking and poor in spirit, he is rich in mercy. And because of what? The great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us, he did what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seat, look at that past tense, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For God, this is a done deal for you if you know and have trusted in and repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants to show. You see, there's hope for us because the king that God sent is a son. Look at what, what the, I believe it's Paul, the author to the Hebrews. It was really a sermon he preached, I think. I believe, I can't say that for sure. But it says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful all over, all over God's house as a son, and we are his house. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Boasting in it. Yeah, I'm kind of lackluster in that, but Jesus isn't. And I'm, I'm riding his coattails. That's why I'm here. Jesus brought me with him. Praise the Lord. I'm boasting in that. That's the kind of confidence you can have. Even with all I just described. That's why we need the announcement of the good news of the terms of peace of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we only have your favor in life now and for life eternal by riding on the coattails of Jesus and his finished work for us. And he is a son in your house, allowing us to come in and live 
as your sons and daughters forever. Indeed, we can boast, but not in ourselves, but in our hope, secured by Jesus himself, boasting in and praising him for his eternally great salvation of us. For it is in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.